0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So Joan walked into the worship service overwhelmed one morning. She was struggling to get her kids out. She's a single mom. She's distracted. She's frazzled. And as she walked into church on a Sunday morning, worship became more of a drudgery. It became more of a routine. Her heart wasn't in it. She just wished, can I just stay home and not show up on Sunday mornings? That's Joan. Mark is a young college student. He's grown up in church he got saved in high school. He stopped listening to secular music. He started listening to Caleb. love He started listening to Air One. He started going to Christian concerts. And when he comes to church, he wants church to be like a Christian concert. He wants it to be exciting. He wants to have the fog machines. He wants it to always be this great spiritual high. And he wants to go to churches where Jesus is more of your buddy, your life coach, than Lord and Savior. Ginger has a great personality, and she loves to sing, and she loves to be seen singing. And so when she comes to church, it's almost like she's trying out for The Voice or American Idol. She wants everyone around her to know that she can sing, Now, she's not been asked to be on the praise team, and she gets a little frustrated that nobody pays attention to her. But her goal in worship is to draw attention to herself as she sings. So maybe next week somebody will notice and say how awesome of a singer she is. Now, Greg is a quiet and reserved man, he's a man of few words. Sometimes he puts up walls. His wife kind of has a hard time communicating with him. But sometimes during the worship service, when he hears the lyrics of the songs, he feels this deep burden in his heart that maybe he wants to cry or maybe he wants to maybe raise his hand. But he feels a little guarded, and he just has those walls, and he never gets to the point where he gives his heart fully to Jesus. He doesn't want to be vulnerable before the Lord. Now, obviously, these four people are fictitious. But they do paint a picture of certain attitudes that we can have when we come into a worship service. So let me ask you a question tonight. Does God care about how we worship? Yes. A.W. Tozer wrote a great book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And this is how A.W. Tozer starts the book, and it's a very interesting question. He says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So here's a fundamental question that we're going to ask tonight. Are you worshiping, we're going to ask two questions. Are you worshiping the right God In the right way. Are you worshiping the right God in the right way? So here's the first question. And are we going to advance? Oh, I need to turn it on. There we go. Are you worshiping the right God? Not the lowercase generic God that you've made up where you hear people sometimes say, to me, God, or I would never worship a God that dot, 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 fill in the blank and it has nothing to do with what the Bible says about God. Do you worship the true God of the Bible, how he's revealed himself to us, all of his attributes? That's the first question. And second, are you worshiping God in the right way? Which brings up a question. You can worship the right God in the wrong way. Now, you can worship the wrong God, that's that's bad, but you can actually worship God the wrong way or the incorrect way. So we're going to ask these two questions tonight, are you worshiping the right God and are you worshiping the right God in the right way? Now, this really goes to the first and second commandments. And we find the answer tonight in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is a, um, I know we've been off for two weeks, so let's just do some review. Last time we met, David was anointed king at Hebron, and he finally takes Jerusalem. They captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites, they were the last of the ites to be taken, and so David has captured Jerusalem. But the one thing they've got to do is they've got to go bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant tonight. So this is a somewhat of a familiar passage of Scripture, and it's kind of shocking. It's kind of startling. But let's just read 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 15, and we'll, we'll kind of break this up a little bit. So let's, let's just look at verses 1 through 4. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took a hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So let's ask the first question, are you worshiping the right God? Now let's talk about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the most important piece of furniture, if you want to call it, to the nation. If you remember, it was a wooden box. In it was the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, the jar of manna. And then on top of it was the mercy seat with gold that was engraved with the the flying creatures, the cherubim. But most importantly, what did the Ark of the Covenant represent? It represented where God would meet with his people in the Holy of Holies. So if you go back to Exodus 25-22, when God is giving instructions to Moses on how to build the tabernacle and all the furnishings and the Ark, God says, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people. So it was the most important physical object in Israel that represented the very presence of God, the worship of God, the word of God, Everything that was kind of localized in the tabernacle, that's where God met with his people. So, the Ark of the Covenant, sometimes when you read the Old Testament, it represents the very nature and character of God because of how it was constructed and what it conveys and what's inside it. And so from this passage of Scripture, we see four powerful truths about worshiping the right God so we're asking the question are you worshiping the right God so let's look at these four truths that answer the question are we worshiping the right God so the first thing we see is he is the God who rules who rules the ark of the covenant represents God's presence to the Israelites as a God who ruled over them now God had always set up some type of human person to be a leader. Moses was a leader. Joshua was a leader. Samuel was a leader. And even here, David is the earthly leader. But let's just make it very clear. Even though there's an earthly king ruling over Israel, who's the ultimate ruler overall? It's God. It's, It's the Lord. And so God himself is their king. David's the earthly chosen king, but let's not forget God is the sovereign, ultimate king. In 1 Chronicles 28.2, Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the, of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and I made preparations for building. Just a side note here, David wants to make a house, a tabernacle, a permanent temple, but he calls it the footstool of our God. What's a footstool? The place where you sit on your throne and you put your feet on it. The idea of a footstool or God putting his feet down on his enemies is a symbol of his kingship, his rulership, in the sense that God is king. God rules. So the Ark of the Covenant is actually also called the footstool of God, representing the kingly authority and rule of God. So Psalm 99, 1 through 5. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his mighty love, in his might, loves justice. You've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. So let's ask the question. Is this the God you worship, the God who rules and reigns and is sovereign and has all creation under his sovereign authority, that he sits enthroned in heaven? Or do you have the shallow, wimpy, weak God who really can't do much, but he's just kind of this grandfather in the sky that smiles down and gives you some blessings every now and then? Is the God you worship The ruler of all. Are you worshiping the right God? The sovereign ruler. Okay. Again, the imagery of God and what we're thinking about comes from the Ark of the Covenant. What does the Ark of the Covenant represent? It represents the footstool of God. God rules over all. Now, the second truth, he is the God who saves. What is on top of God? the Ark of the Covenant. Does anybody know? It's like a lid, but it was called the mercy seat. Pure gold, the mercy seat. And engraved on the mercy seat were the two cherubim, Do you guys remember back in Isaiah 6 where the flying creatures were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? So the the cherubim represent the absolute holiness of God. But what happened on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant? It was symbolic of a blood sacrifice where God would forgive the sins of his people through an atonement. Back in Leviticus, God gives instructions for the day of atonement, and the mercy seat or the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant would play a very important role in this symbolic way of showing that God was forgiving the sins of the people in the Old Testament through a blood sacrifice. So Leviticus 16, 14-15. through He shall, And he's talking about the high priest here, Aaron and his sons. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat. On the east side and in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that's for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. So what all is going on top of the mercy seat? Blood. He's killing an animal. He's putting blood. He's sprinkling blood on top of the mercy seat. He's circling the blood seven times. This is the day of atonement. The day in Israel's history where they would sacrifice an animal, and it would cover the sins for the entire year, and the symbolic way of showing that was the blood would come into the Holy of Holies and it would be smeared on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and so it's a whole idea that God's holy wrath, God's justice has to be appeased through the blood sacrifice of an animal in the Old Testament and that blood had to be shed and poured or smeared on the mercy seat. Now, Obviously, that's a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. The day of atonement was year after year after year after year. Jesus came once and for all and died as the ultimate lamb of God for our sins. And so if your view of God does not include a bloody sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to forgive sins, then your view of God is less than what the Bible reveals. I'm very concerned with progressive Christianity that's been ma- rapidly moving through evangelicalism. It seems like almost every day a, a CCM artist, a contemporary Christian music artist, has fallen from the faith, has denounced the faith, has, has repudiated the faith, have they've deconstructed is the word they're using now. And a lot of people are offended by blood. So Sunday, we sang in Christ alone. There on the cross as Jesus died, what? The wrath of God was satisfied. Okay, there is a denomination, I won't say what it is, but it's a liberal denomination that wanted to change the words because they did not like the idea of God being a God of wrath that needed to have blood to appease him. So they changed the lyrics to there on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, is that true? Was the love of God magnified? Yes. But was the wrath of God satisfied? Yes. Now the Gettys, Keith and Kristen Getty, who wrote In Christ Alone, they're from Ireland, they would not allow that denomination to do that. Number one, it's copyrighted, but number two, it's like you're you're stripping the theology out of the song. And so there's a lot of people that don't like blood. I will give you the quote that I love to give a lot of times by Charles Spurgeon, and only the way Charles Spurgeon can say it. So listen to Charles Spurgeon. And this was probably in one of his sermons. Let's see. Let me look at my uh, 1888. He preached this in 1888. This is really close to his death. This is what he said. If there should ever come a wretched day when all our pulpits shall be full of modern thought and the old doctrine of a substitutionary atonement shall be exploded, then will there remain no word of comfort for the guilty or hope for the despairing? Shall we speak with bated breath because some affected person shudders at the sound of the word blood? Or some cultured individual rebels at the old-fashioned thought of sacrifice. Nay, verily, we will sooner have our tongue cut out than to cease to speak of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen, Spurgeon, tell us what you really think about that. So he is the God who rules. The Ark of the Covenant represents God's footstool, His rule, his reign, his kingly authority. He's the God who saves. By blood sacrifice, through Jesus Christ, once and for all, death on the cross for our sins, the wrath of God was satisfied through a blood sacrifice of Jesus. Now what's the third thing that this tells us about the right God? This is third. He is the God who speaks. What's inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. Now, let's just talk a little bit about the Ten Commandments. Why the Ten Commandments? How many laws did God give Israel? A lot. But there are only ten that were written with the very finger of God etched in stone tablets to be preserved in the Ark of the Covenant. So, in the Ark of the Covenant, you have the written Word of God from an Old Testament perspective. Exodus 25, 21 through 22. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all, I will speak with you all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God is a speaking God. Have you ever thought about, let me just say it this way, do you guys know when the first sermon was ever preached? God said, let there be light, and there was. God could have snapped his fingers and had the universe come by snapping his fingers, but how did he choose to create? By his word. And ever since then, God has been a speaking God. How did God God send his law to be written down in the Old Testament. God sent his prophets to declare his word. God sent John the Baptist to preach his word. God sent Jesus, the living word, to preach and to die on the cross. God sent the apostles to preach in the book of Acts. And what does God do today? How do people get saved? How do people know about Jesus? Through us who speak. So God is a speaking God. And if God has chosen to speak, how, what's the written word for us today? We do not have the Ark of the Covenant today, and we don't have the Ten Commandments. They're still applicable today, obviously, because they're the Ten Eternal Commandments. But we don't have that apparatus or that piece of furniture. What do we have today? We have the completed Scripture. So, we must worship God as he's chosen to reveal himself through speech and, most importantly, the written word of God. There are a lot of people that give lip service to God's word, but when it comes to obeying it, they want to pick and choose. God's word is, and I'm going to give you a big Greek word, Theanustos. Theanustos. It's the only thing ever in the world that's theanustos is the written word of God. Theos means God. Pneuma means breath or breathed out. You see this in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All scripture is theanustos, is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So any view of God that does not honor His Word, the Bible, is a false view of God. Again, it's very concerning how many quote-unquote professing evangelical Christians are waffling on the written Word of God. Saying things like, well, that's what they believed back then. We've evolved. We have come to a greater understanding about human sexuality, and so we know that, that was archaic back then, and they were doing the best they could with the information they had, but we've come so far and by the way, a God would not say that you can't do this or can't do that because that makes God mean, and we don't want to have a mean God. I've said it before. You either believe Genesis to maps or you don't. Some of you are like, I don't understand what he's saying. Genesis to Revelation. Maps is not, maps is not inspired, but hopefully in the back of your... Phys- Some of you that have the digital Bibles... You can't say that. You don't have maps at the back. You could probably have a map you can pull up on your digital device. But we've got to believe the written word of God. So let's think about these three things. Are you worshiping the right God? The God who rules. The sovereign, absolute king. The ruling, sovereign God. The God who saves. And the God who saves by the means of a blood sacrifice through his son Jesus Christ. And then the God who speaks, the God who has given us his infallible, inerrant, true, written word for us to obey, cover to cover. But then most importantly for this passage of Scripture, and it's it's really front and center in this chapter, number four, he is the God who is holy. Now, But to this point, we've just talked about the symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant. Let's get into the text and find out what happens here. So they go with their 30,000 men, and they go get the Ark of God, and they bring it back. And they bring it on a cart. And they bring it out of the house of Abinadab. And Abinadad's two sons, Uzzah and Ahio, were driving the cart. And everybody's excited. Everybody's celebrating. Look at verse 5. The house of Israel, they're celebrating. There's harps and lines. It's a joyous occasion. The Ark of the Covenant is finally coming back into Jerusalem where it belongs. But look at verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Now, okay, so let's picture it in your mind. What's the ark of the covenant being carried on? An ox cart being pulled by oxen. Okay, you know what potholes are, right? I'm sure they probably had, I don't know if they were potholes back then, but they were probably grooves. So they get to the threshing floor. Okay, a threshing floor is is kind of a, probably an uneven area so so what happened was maybe the oxen kind of stumbled or the or maybe the wheel caught but the ark was about to pop out or fall off then what does Uzzah do Uzzah thinks I don't want the ark to fall off because if it falls off it's going to touch the ground so I'm going to stop the ark from falling now you may think to yourself well that's just like a natural reflex There's nothing wrong with touching the ark and letting it fall. What happens to Uzzah when he does that? God strikes him dead. And you're thinking, now wait a minute. What's going on here? Now, we need to go back and understand from the very beginning why this whole thing was done left-footed in the first place. Or wonky. Back in Numbers chapter 4, God gave instructions about how to transport the ark of the covenant. Okay, so let's look at how God gave instructions way back in Numbers on how did this was supposed to happen. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out after the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. Okay. Okay. You're not supposed to touch the ark, but you also find out you're supposed to transport the ark on their shoulders with poles, not on an ox cart. So two ways you're supposed to carry the ark. Number one, the priests are supposed to carry it on poles. There's like little clasps on the ark on the side where you can put the poles through to carry it. So number one, they weren't carrying it correctly. They were putting it on an ox cart. Uh Uh-uh, they weren't supposed to do that. And number two, what were you not supposed to do? Touch it. Okay? Never touch it or what would happen? So let me ask you a question. Is this like out of the blue or has God given them explicit instructions beforehand? Sometimes we think God just does things out of the blue. No. No. If you go back and look, God's pretty specific about how he wants things done. It's just they did not pay attention. So Uzzah touches the ark, and God kills him on the spot. So you have to ask the question, what was Uzzah's sin? Here's Uzzah's sin. He thought the ark shouldn't touch the ground, or it would become unclean. If it touched, why do you think he stopped it from falling? It's going gonna, it's gonna to hit the ground. It's going to hit the dirt. It can't hit the dirt. It's going to be unclean if it hits the dirt. What's ground? It's dirt. Think about it this way a human hand is more sinful than the ground. And by touching it and trying to prevent it from falling to the ground, Uzzah did more harm than good. A human hand is way more sinful to a holy God than the ground he created. Uzzah, who cares if it touches the ground? You're not supposed to touch it. And because you touched it, you're surely going to die. Your hand is more sinful than the ground. Now that's a holy God. That's an absolutely holy God that says, I'm setting the standards, I'm setting the rules, and if you violate them, there are consequences. Now, R.C. Sproul has written an awesome book, The Holiness of God. Hopefully everybody's had a chance to at least read it. I know um, our ladies' Bible studies going through that on Thursday mornings. You can go on Right Now Media and watch the videos. But let me give you a quote from that book. From R.C. Sproul, When when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. God is too great for us. He's too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He is the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In his presence we quake and tremble. Meeting him personally may be our greatest trauma without Jesus. What does the Bible say about holiness of God? Exodus 15:11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. Majestic in holiness. Exodus 34:14. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He's jealous for His glory. He's holy. Isaiah 42.8, I, I am the Lord, that's my name, my glory, I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is supremely holy, and He's jealous for His name, and only the way God can now, let me give you a little illustration here. Let's say I take Dawn out to an anniversary dinner. So a few years ago, for our 25th, we went out to California before COVID, and, and you know, we went on this nice restaurant out on the beach in Malibu and saw the dolphins and all this stuff. Was, you know, it was a wonderful dinner. And let's say that this, um, the waiter comes up and serves us our food, and, and the waiter says, um, you know, your wife is pretty attractive. Well, thank you she is attractive this is our 25th anniversary I, I really you know we're really having a great time here yeah she's so attractive would you mind um i'm going to give you my room number and do you think later on you can send her up to my room and um i want to you know kind of spend spend some time with your wife okay as a husband what would i do at that moment i would probably punch him out <laughs> okay what am i going to do i'm going to be jealous for my wife in a good way right I'm going to be like, buddy, you don't butt in. Okay, you have no business. At that moment, as a human husband, every fiber of my being says, I'm going to protect my wife and you stay away. And if not, I'm going to have to do something to you. Okay, think about how much God is jealous for his people, his bride. He does not want any competition. Not that God's afraid of the competition. Not that God can't handle the competition. But God is so absolutely holy. God is so jealous for his name that God is to be honored above all. He's not going to share his glory with anybody else. He's absolutely holy. So let's ask the question Are you worshiping the right God? And let's look at those four things a God who rules, a God who saves a God who speaks, and a God who is absolutely holy. That's the first question. Do you have the right God? Okay, let's say you have the right God. Let's ask the second question. Are you worshiping the right God in the right way? Can you be guilty of worshiping Him in the wrong way? with wrong motives or wrong attitudes. So just like there were four aspects to the character of God, especially from the Ark of the Covenant and from His holiness, we see four aspects of genuine worship from this passage of Scripture. So now we're talking about how do we worship God correctly. And we see it from this passage of Scripture. So here's the first. You should worship God in reverent awe. Uzzah thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was being helpful. He didn't want the ark to touch the ground. And you have to ask the question, couldn't God have been a little bit more understanding I'll I'll give Uzzah a free pass. He didn't really know what he was doing. Was God flexible in that moment with his holiness and his requirements? What did God God command? You can't touch it or you will die. Let's go back to the very beginning. What did God say to Adam and Eve? Has God ever been stingy? Go back to Genesis chapter 1. God said to Adam and Eve, actually in Genesis chapter 2, you may eat of any tree from the garden. Does that sound like stinginess to you? No, you may eat from any tree of the garden except for one. You eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day you eat of it, you will surely die. What happened when Adam ate of it? He brought spiritual death and physical death into the world. And so God meant business even from the very beginning. So all along, God never lowers the threshold of his standard just because of our sin. If God's always lowering the standard, then what would always happen? Would He be holy? Would He be righteous if He's always adjusting the standard? And so, this type of absolute holy God's not very marketable, is He? I don't think we as humans would ever have invented a God like this. We, we want a God that would give us, like, be flexible God, be compromising God. We want a God that's more like us. Now, let's ask the question how does David respond to this? Look at verse 8. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid. He's angry, in in verse 9, he's afraid. David was afraid. So the two emotions from David is he's angry and he's afraid. Now, why was David angry? Was he mad at God for killing Uzzah? Or was he mad at Uzzah for doing what he did? Okay, this is where the Bible doesn't really give us enough information. What does it say there? You guys tell me, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. We don't really know. We really don't know, but here's my guess. David was probably not angry at God because he knew God's standard and what was required of transporting the ark, and he knew the warning given to the priests that if they touched it, they would die. God is only acting in accordance with his word and character. Why would he allow it? Why did David allow the cart? That's a great question. If David knew better, why did he allow it? It could have been when it happened, he's like, oh, yeah, I remember numbers. We probably should have gone back and done it the right way the first time. So, I mean, there's some things there that you ask the question, why did David allow it? Or why didn't the priests know? So there is, that, that brings up a good question, Nancy. There is some lack of spiritual leadership even in David here. And even in the priesthood. Because the priest should have stood up and said, uh, King, we don't. I know, you, I know you're the king, but let me pull you aside here. We really shouldn't be carrying this on an ox cart. If you go back to the book of Numbers, we really should be carrying it on poles. And I think if they would have told David, David would have been like, oh yeah, yeah. That, that is in Numbers, we need to do that. So maybe the priests forgot, maybe the priests were afraid. Who knows, there, there's, just, there's some lack of leadership. We really don't know. But David's angry. He could have been angry at God, or he could have been angry at Uzzah. We really don't know. But it just says he's angry. And it startled David in a healthy way. I mean, when you see somebody die on the spot because they touched the Ark of the Covenant, how are you going to respond? Is that going to freak you out? Is that going to get your attention? Is that going to make you a little bit afraid? Now, let's talk about the fear of the Lord. This is not in your notes, but I want to I give it to you just because it came into my head, which is a dangerous thing to happen when something pops into your head. But I've taught this before, so trust me. There are two types of fear in the Bible. Okay, the, the Hebrew word is yare, and the Greek word is phobos. We get the word phobia. There's two types of fear in the Bible. There's a terror fear, And there's a worship fear. Terror fear is where you are a non-Christian and you view God as a judge and you should be afraid of him because he can kill you on the spot or he can cast you into hell. It's a terror fear. The second type of fear is a worship fear where you worship God not as a judge but as a father Your sins have been forgiven by Jesus. You're already in the family, but you still have a healthy fear of God as the sovereign king. It's a healthy type of fear, not a terror fear. Now, we don't know what kind of fear David had. It could have been a combination of both, but we do know in Proverbs 1-7, what does it say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord. Okay, Isaiah 66, 2. All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Not that we should be shaking in our boots at God, but I'm concerned that sometimes today in our churches and among evangelical Christians, we've lost that holy awe and reverence for God. There's kind of a flippancy. There's kind of a casualness. There's kind of, I'm just going to kind of barge into God's presence and I'm not going to, I'm not going to truly realize that I'm coming into the presence of the holy God. Now, we can approach his presence with confidence because of Christ. But he is still the sovereign king. You guys, do you guys remember the old t-shirts in the early 2000s it was around 2006 and 2007, Jesus is my homeboy? Those were t-shirts that were sold, Jesus is my homeboy. That's kind of a flippant attitude. God's my bud. Now, he is our heavenly father, and we can approach him with confidence. We can approach him because he loves us. But there also at the same time should be a seriousness, an awe, a reverence. See, here's the paradox of God God is so high and exalted and above us, he's transcendent, yet at the same time, he's close. He's both. Now, it only happens through Jesus. You can't approach the Father unless you come through Jesus. Listen to John Piper. This is a quote from one of his books. He says this, The older I get, the less impressed I am with flashy success and enthusiasms that are not truth-based. More and more, this doctrinally diluted brew of music, drama, life tips, and marketing seem out of touch with real life in this world. It tastes like watered-down gruel, not a nourishing meal. It simply isn't serious enough. It's too playful and chatty and casual. Its joy doesn't feel deep enough or heartbroken or well-rooted. So it seems to me that the trifling with silly little sketches and breezy welcome-to-the-den styles of sunny morning are just out of touch with what matters in life. Now, I'm not saying here that there should be a somberness in worship, but there should be a weightiness. Now, there sometimes could be a somberness. But the question is, just think about it for a moment. When you enter these doors on a Sunday morning on the Lord's Day, and you come into this place, do you really know what you're about to experience? do you really think I'm about to encounter the living God in corporate worship and am I, is my heart serious? Is my heart ready? Is there a reverent awe or is there a shallow callousness, not callousness, casualness and flippancy? Now, some churches, I'm not going to pick on other churches because I don't go to other churches because I'm in this church every Sunday. Some of you visited other churches, and you come back and tell me. Some churches are very, very casual. They're um, kind of, I would say, flippant, or there's just not a weight to them. And so one of the things we need to really remember when we worship God is that are we worshiping him with reverent awe? Do we make up who we want God to be? Regardless of what the Bible clearly teaches? Do we worship God the way He's revealed? Do we worship a God who is a God who does have the right to show wrath? Do we worship a God who says there is an everlasting hell? Do we believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Do we believe that there is a final judgment? Do we believe the Bible does condemn homosexuality and transgender and all of those crazy things? God has not been silent. The second commandment tells us how to worship God in the right way, and one of the ways that we break the second commandment today, you're not going to go fashion idols in your backyard probably. Anybody here ever taken a little wood and whittled out a little... Deer or animal or totem in their backyard? No. How you break the second commandment is you do it through your mind or your imagination. And here's what you say: My God would never. Dot dot dot. To me, I think God is. Dot dot dot. In my heart, I really feel God is. Dot dot dot. And whatever follows the dot 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 is what you want God to be that you've made up, not what it says in the Bible. My God would never send anybody to hell that didn't trust in Jesus. My God would never prevent a loving couple who's the same sex from getting married. My God would never say that Jesus is the only way. That's too restrictive. My God is a God of love. Some people say things like, you know what, I'm not, Religious, but I'm spiritual. And I kind of want to tap into the God within me. And I just think that God's all around and God's in everything and God's in creation. And so that's who God is to me. Now, the prosperity gospel people, what's their God? You can control God by naming it and claiming it. Blabbing it, grabbing it. I speak the words into existence. God is obligated to give it to me. I've told you about that TV show. That one time I saw. Okay, I was I was looking at Christian television one night about 15 years ago. Don't ever do this late at night. Uh, I, I couldn't get to bed. I like I think it was TBN. It was a church in Denver, a big mega church in Denver, and the choir was singing this song. And here's what the song was. And I went back a few years ago. I went back on YouTube and I found the song to make sure that I didn't remember it wrongly. The song went, I want my money, I want my blessing, I want my money. The whole song was, I want what's coming to me, I want my money. And so this whole choir singing, I want what's coming to me, I want, and this is what was hilarious. There was I thought this was a joke, but it, was, it wasn't. There was, a, there was a number on the bottom of the screen, and you know what the number was? 1-800-BLESS-ME, 1-800-BLESS-ME. I want a God who exists as a genie in the bottle to bless me. I want my money. I want my healing. I want my anointing. I want, I want, I want. And if God does, and and God's obligated to give it to me. If I give enough money to the televangelist, if I sow my seed, if I do enough, God will give it to me. Or my God's a big grandfather up in the sky in a rocking chair with a big long beard, and he just kind of looks down and smiles at me. And, you know, if I mess up here and there, he just kind of chuckles and says, oh, kids will be kids. He's the the big man upstairs. You're breaking the second commandment when you say in your mind, this is the God I want. So the first way we worship God in the right way is with reverent awe. We realize He is holy. We have a healthy fear of God. There is a reverence. There is a weightiness. There is a seriousness. Okay, second, now, you may think that I'm, um, <laughs> I'm contradicting myself, but I'm not. Second, you should worship God in overflowing joy. Joy. Look at verse 14. So let's just kind of fill in the gaps here. Um, David's afraid, and what does he do? He's like, I don't know if I want to bring the ark back to my house in Jerusalem. Let's send it back to Obed-Edom. Let's send it to this guy. And then, so it's there for how long? I think it's there for three months. And then he gets blessed. And David's like, okay, I guess it's okay now to bring it back. Um, And so they bring it back. But um, I want you to notice verse 14. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David danced before the Lord with all his might. It's interesting, there's two responses to God in this chapter. They're shuddering in awe and dancing in joy. Shuddering and dancing. How can these two things go together? Now, just a side note here. David learned his lesson, didn't he? Do you notice how they brought the ark back into Jerusalem? Look at verse 14. I'm, I'm sorry. Where are we here? Well, let's look at verse 12. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing, rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... He sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. What's assumed in there? Those who bore the ark had gone What are they doing this time? We're carrying it on poles. And we're going to take six steps. And on the, we're going to stop before the seventh. And, and David's going to sacrifice an animal. So David's like, ah, I remember numbers. I don't want to have another Uzzah situation. Let's do it the right way this time. So they bring the ark back in the right way. And David is dancing before the Lord. And so there's great joy, there's great rejoicing, he danced before the Lord with all of his might. So it's kind of a contrast, but I want you to think about it. Can you worship God with a seriousness and a weightiness and a reverent awe and at the same time have it be also joyful? And when I say joyful, I don't mean happy clappy where like it's fake and plastic and it's like real cheesy. I'm talking about a deep-seated sense of, I have a deep sense of joy in the Lord. Joy does not depend upon circumstances. It's not happiness. Joy means you can trust in God's sovereignty regardless of the circumstances and God gives you that deep sense of contentment and joy regardless of what's going on. So you can be in the midst of a worship service singing a song that brings tears to your eyes because you're overwhelmed with whatever's going on in your life or the weight of your sin and tears come down your face because I'm in the presence of a holy God and I'm overwhelmed but at the same time they're tears of joy because Jesus loves me and I can't believe. I mean, you can have both those things happen at the same time. And I'm sure that's happened to you in a worship service before. Okay, well let's keep reading and find out what happens with David's wonderful wife. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all this house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, for them I should be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Let's back up just a moment. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Michael was not the first choice of David. Remember Saul reneged and t- took the one that David wanted and gave Michael because he thought Michael would be a snare to David? Um, And so notice how she's kept being called Saul's daughter, Saul's daughter. She's an ungodly woman, and she has been. But David's kind of stuck with her because Saul arranged this marriage for David. And this was back when Saul could have killed David. And so he's married to this woman um, who's an ungodly woman. And what happens? She does not like the way that David is leaping and dancing and worshiping with this intensity of joy. If you look at verse 16, she looks out the window, and what's David doing? He's leaping and dancing before the Lord. Now, don't ask me what that looks like. I don't know what leaping and dancing looked like back then, but, I, but you can imagine that it's not, it's not like David's like going, Yay, the ark is back. This is great. What is it? Like, he's given it his all. He's an exuberant, cheerful joyful like i'm excited we, the ark is back and so i'm not saying here that at emmanuel you need to start leaping around the, the if you start leaping and jumping around the sanctuary we might have to have our safety and security team come say are you okay i'm not saying that we copy this type of leaping and dancing and some churches do some weird things like that um You just got to be careful with stuff like that. But the Bible does say, let's put it this way, as a reserved Baptist, you can leap and jump in your heart. You can just go ahead and do that right in your heart. (laughs) Okay. All right, so Psalm 47, one through two. Clap your hands, all the peoples. Shout to God with songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Clap your hands, shout. Now, it's funny the things we do in church and the things we don't. Nobody has a problem with clapping in church, do we? Would people have a problem with shouting? I'm going to shout the song as loud as I can. People be like, tone it down, mister. You need to sing. We don't have a problem with raising our hands. Some people do the this. Some people do this. Some people do this. Some people got the, I can barely get it up. So there's like the, you know, the, like the waiter, I'm going to hand you your food type thing. But the Bible also says to lay prostrate before the Lord. How many people lay flat? So there's some things we pick and choose what we want to do. I don't think the I don't think the activity is as important as the heart. Because I can tell you, I'll tell you guys a story. So when I was a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, it was See You at the Pole. Um, Wednesday, This I think it's like the third Wednesday of September, See You at the Pole is a big event. And so I did not know that the biggest church in Colorado Springs was going to all the other churches and inviting all the kids to go to their church for See You at the Pole. So I show up to church, and then this big van comes from the, the church will name Lameless, but it's the largest church in Colorado Springs of about 10,000 people. They came and said, hey, we're having a seat at the pole, and this guy comes out with this video camera, and da, da da So anyway, all the high schoolers went because they had cars, and the middle schoolers had to stay back, and they were mad at me. But anyway, our pastor's daughter went, okay? Now, this was kind of a... Um, this, is, this was kind of a church that practiced some more demonstrative type of worship, okay? And so the pastor's daughter was next to another girl. And the girl um, was singing and yelling and screaming. And then she started getting on the floor and rolling around and doing weird stuff. And my, the pastor's daughter went down to her and said, Are you okay? <laughs> And the girl looked up and said, leave me alone, I'm being slain in the spirit. So she's like yelled at her. She's like, leave me alone, I'm being slain in the spirit. So the point is, you can go through the motions of being like spiritual, but then have the attitude of like, leave me alone, I'm trying to be spiritual here. Um, So you can go through the motions of worship and have an attitude of the heart that's not there. So what God is really after is the overflowing joy of worship. The heart. So what's the opposite of joy or exuberance or um, just this kind of um, joyful worship? What's the opposite of it? Well, it's, it's worshiping out of duty. I've got to do it. It's a drudgery. I'm just kind of going through the motions. I don't really want to be here. It's kind of lifeless. It's dry. Um, I'm, I have to clap. I have to sing. I really don't want to be here, but it's the thing I've got to do, so I'm just going through the motions. So two things happen. When you stand in awe of a holy God and you rightly worship Him as sovereign king, you will find that He does bring joy to your heart. And those two things can exist together. That awe and that joy. And you're not doing it because you're going through the motions, you're doing it because your heart's in it. Now, am I saying that every Sunday your heart has to be in it? I told you the story about the guy that it was Sunday morning and the guy, you know, didn't want to get out of bed and his, his wife's like, honey, you gotta get out of bed. We gotta go to church. She's like, I don't want to go to church. She's like, honey, you, we gotta go to church. You, you know, we need to go to church. I don't want to go to church. I don't like that place. I don't like those people. I don't want to go to church. Do we have to go to church today? She's like, honey, you have to go to church today. You're the pastor. <laughs> that's not me that's a story about somebody else I'm just saying that's like an old pastor's joke but there are times even as a pastor where I come in with a lot of distractions and you know I'm down here at the front and, and there are other thi- like I sometimes not not often but there are times where I feel like you know, you're just kind of, you're trying to get through the service because you have other things on your mind. It happens to the best of us. So I'm not saying that every single time you come in here, you've got to be fully locked and loaded and engaged. But what I'm saying is, is are you coming in with an attitude of joy and of weightiness and, and understanding God's sovereignty? You're not just going through the motions. Okay, third, you should worship God with a singular focus. David's wife is judging him. David's wife is, how dare you go out there and make a fool of yourself and dance around and look like an idiot? You're the king, and you're only showing off for the girls. You know, you're, you're stripping down to your ephod. Now, the ephod, there's, no, there's nothing, okay. It's not like, some people say, David was dancing in his underwear. Okay, no. An ephod was, it, it, was, a, it was a respectable garment. It wasn't like David was out there being naughty. Okay, let's put it that way. <laughs> He was actually dressed appropriately, but she's making a big deal about it. But I want you to notice what David says in verse 21. What does he say? David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all the houses to appoint me as the prince of Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. David's like, listen, I wasn't showing off for these girls. That's not what you think. I'm not trying to draw attention to myself. I'm not trying to do this so that people will look at me. I did this because my singular focus was on the Lord. Now here's something that we have to kind of think about when we come to worship. This is a kind of a hard one. When you come to worship, are you more concerned about what other people think of you or how you look to others or are you trying to put on air so that people will think you're more highly of you? Is there some, now, maybe there is a fear when you come to worship that people are watching me. I can't be myself. I wonder what someone so thinks about that's sitting over there. Um, that's why I sat in the front row, because if I sat at the back and saw everything going on, I'd be, I couldn't handle it. <laughs> so that's why I sit here, in a, like singular focus. I'm like, okay, there's me, there's the screen, and then sometimes I look at my wife playing bass just to see her. But anyway, um, are you coming here with the singular focus for the Lord do you simply come with one heart and one mind God is my audience and I'm here to worship him alone I have a singular focus let me let me put it to you this way this may sound weird worship is a performance I disagree with you, Pastor Sean, if your audience is God. Who are, you here to, who are you here to worship? What other people think of you, the praise team? Or are you here to have your singular focus before the Lord? And so we're not here to draw attention to ourselves. And one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 115, 1 through 3, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where's their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. When you have a singular focus, here's what you ask when you leave a worship service. Was God pleased with what happened today? You don't leave with questions like, I really didn't like the worship today. Oh, the praise team was a little off. God didn't speak to me today. Pastor Sean didn't hit a home run. He was kind of boring. This didn't really hit me today. I didn't have that, I didn't have that chill going down my spine type thing. Well, what are you judging it upon? How everything around you made you do something? The real question is when you come to worship, was God pleased with what was done? Was your heart engaged? Was there a singular focus? Was God pleased with the worship? I wonder if we ask that question when we leave church. Was God pleased today? Versus, I didn't like it, or I liked, or I preferred, or I this, or I, I, I this. No, we walk out of here, like, was God pleased? Was God here? Do we have a singular focus? And then fourth... This one is a little difficult, and I'm not saying this has to happen all the time, but in some ways, we should worship God in in some type of vulnerable humility. Now, there's degrees of vulnerability, and I think we need to be a little bit careful here. Um, David danced around, and he was doing it for the Lord, and he didn't care what people thought of him. And notice what he says in verse 22. He says to himself, I'll make myself more contemptible than this. I'll be abased in your eyes. I'll make myself more abased, more undignified. Now, when you truly want to be open before the Lord, you need to be vulnerable, you need to be humble. You need to be willing to be broken before God no matter what others think of you because you desire to honor Jesus. Okay, now here's something that's very Sometimes I think in worship, we can be held back from truly doing business with God for fear of man. If God is leading me to come up to the altar and pray, I should have the freedom to come up and pray because I need to do business with God and not worry about what somebody's thinking of me. Because what's the first thought that you're going to think of? What's wrong with that dude? What sin does he have in his life? Why is he going up there? Honey, did you see? What's, what's going on? Now, I'm not saying every Sunday you should bare your soul, or, or, but I'm saying that when you come to be in worship, if you truly met the Lord, you, you shouldn't put up walls. If God's trying to penetrate your heart, I mean, sovereignly, he can do whatever he wants, but I think sometimes we need to be a little bit more vulnerable. And David was willing to be misunderstood, he was willing to be made fun of, humiliated, because he wanted to grow closer to the Lord. And Michael was more concerned with outward appearance. Michael's like, David, you're making a fool of yourself, and David's like, you know what? I really don't care if I look like I'm making a fool of myself as long as I get closer to my Lord. People may think I'm crazy. People may think I'm stupid. But I'm doing this because I have a singular focus on the Lord. Now, there's a balance there. You don't do this to draw attention to yourself. But at some point, you have to stop and say, I don't care what other people think. I have to do this because this is going to draw me closer to the Lord with with appropriate boundaries. I mean, we don't don't want a free-for-all on a Sunday morning where people are kind of doing everything crazy. But it's about humility, okay? Being willing to be broken before the Lord. Proverbs 29, 23, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And then Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what's the opposite of this type of thing? It's guardedness, not willing to be broken, having a hard heart, not ready to repent, coming in with walls. All right. So we've asked the two questions. Do you worship God, the right God, the God who rules, the God who saves, the God who speaks, and the God who's holy? Do you worship God in the right way? Do you worship him with reverent awe? Do you worship him with joyful exuberance? Do you worship him with a singular focus, and do you worship him with a humility and a vulnerability? Now, here's the ultimate thing, and I've said it all along. Here's where the rubber meets the road. The only way we can truly worship the right God in the right way is through Jesus. Jesus is the shepherd king, the greater son of David, who sacrificed himself for us on the cross and blessed us by giving us the gift of salvation. Do you notice what David does here when he brings everybody back to Israel? Did you catch it? Go to, look at verse 18. David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed to his house. What's David doing? He sacrifices an animal and then he blesses the people with gifts of food and joy because he loved them as their king. He was a generous king. Now, if David, as simple as he was, was a generous king, how much more generous is our king Jesus, who did not have to offer burnt sacrifices but sacrificed himself as the ultimate lamb of God, and he didn't give out raisin cakes and and, and things like that. He gave us all the blessings, all the spiritual blessings, a right relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, all of these things. And so how do we know we're worshiping the right God? It's the God who rules, the God who saves, the God who speaks, and the God who's holy. And how do you worship this God in the right way? Only through Jesus. And you come to him with awe. You come to him with humility. You come to him with joy. You come to him with a single focus. You come to him with vulnerability. So the question is, the next time you enter into a public worship service, ask those two questions when you walk through those doors and you sit down and you begin to worship am I worshiping the right God and am I worshiping Him in the right way? And then you need to ask yourself, what are some changes I may need to make in my heart to make sure that I'm doing things biblically? So, we've got 15 minutes left for questions, comments, or snide remarks. And for me to get some water. What questions do you have? Are there any online, Tarina? No questions. No comments. No prognostications, communications, exasperations, meditations, suggestions. <laughs> I'm trying to think of all that. the other words, ends with, with uns. All right, let me pray for you then. Father, we do come before you tonight in. We do want to worship you for who you are. As as you've revealed yourself to us in the scriptures, we have the written word to know how to worship you rightly. And so, Lord, we want to worship you with reverent awe. We want to worship you with a deep joy in our hearts. We want to worship you with a singular focus. And, and Lord, we want to be vulnerable and humble before you. And so, Lord, if, if you were to convict us through your Holy Spirit and and, and reveal sin and, and, and convict us and show us areas of, of, of change. Help us to not harden our hearts or, or to run from that, but Lord, help us to embrace that and, and come to you. And so, Lord, thank you for David in this passage of Scripture. Um, thank you for the joy that he had before you. Lord, we look at your holiness in, in killing Uzzah, and that kind of starrows us. But, Lord, we know that you are absolutely holy, and we're thankful that because of Jesus dying on the cross in our place, we won't ever have to experience that, that kind of wrath, that kind of judgment, because, Jesus, you took that in our place. And so we're thankful for that. So, Jesus, thank you for being our great king, our great shepherd, and giving us every spiritual blessing, every gift. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.